May mercy and grace and peace be yours from God our Father and from his Son, risen and ascended and reigning. Amen. What next? It's a question we ask and maybe need to ask quite a bit. What next? Some are saying, my high school years of experience have come to a close. What's next? What do I do next? Where do I go from here? Others say, what's next? I've put in my 20 plus years of military duty and it's time for a transition. How am I going to use these skills and experiences that I've gained? What's next? Others say, I've climbed as high as I can up this corporate ladder. I'm ready for a change. Where will it be? What will it be? What's next? Some would say, we've been in this house for 29 years. It needs some significant upgrading, or maybe it's time for us to downsize. What next? A pastor may say, I'm 67 years old. How long do I keep serving in this vocation? And what will I do when I stop doing this? What next? What next is an appropriate question for this Sunday, this Sunday that is in between the festival of our Lord's ascension and the festival of the Holy Spirit. May that Holy Spirit give us expectant hearts, attentive attentive ears and minds to hear the good news because it is good news not only for disciples 2,000 years ago, but for us today. The good news about the return and the church and the name. Good news about the adversary being defeated and about the prayer. People God dearly loves. This morning, I'm going to use all three of today's scripture lessons for this seventh Sunday of the Easter season. These are stories that aren't make-believe. These are stories that are the church's story, and so they are today our story. I'm going to begin by borrowing the last two verses of the Gospel of Luke to begin. These were discussed in Bible class about an hour ago for The book of Acts is the continuation of the story that Luke begins in that third gospel. Here's what he writes. After the 11 disciples watched Jesus ascend from the Mount of Olives, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. What next? Today's first lesson answers that question. Where, the, where do the disciples go after Jesus returns to the courts of heaven? They return to the temple courts. And what do they do there? Well, this is what they don't do. They don't wring their hands in fear and confusion as they did right after the Easter reports. But they do lift their hands in prayer. They are ready to trust that God is leading them, even though their Lord is no longer visibly among them. Luke says it this way in Acts chapter 1. The eleven meet regularly in the upper room together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. We learn this from Luke about this group of 
somewhere around 120, that they are of one accord and are devoting themselves to prayer. These new believers, these first Christians, were of the same heart and of the same mind. All of them believed the same, so all of them acted the same. They continued steadfastly. It's translated that way sometimes. They were busily engaged in the central action of the church. They were worshiping, all of them. Yes, the English Standard Version, the ESV translation says they were, pray- they were devoting themselves to prayer, but the word is bigger and broader than one person praying and the others bowing their heads and saying amen at the end. This is what the church did. This is what the church does. It was the apostles times 10. It includes Mary, the mother of our Lord, Jesus' own half-brothers from up in Nazareth, and at least 100 more now confessing the same truth that Jesus is the promised Messiah the promised Savior, that his death and his resurrection save from sin and death. What next? What's next is to move from Peter's speech to the church in Jerusalem, which is part of today's first reading, to his letter to the church from Rome, which is part of the second reading. What's next after the return from the Mount of Olives, to the church gathered for worship are these two verses for the church being persecuted. From verse 14 of 1 Peter 4, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And verse 16 from the same chapter, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter says, the name of Christ. Peter also says Christian. One of the three times that this label appears in the New Testament. But we know that our Lord is given the name Jesus even before he is born. It means echoing Joshua, echoing Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. It is the name above every name. And it is partnered with Christ because Jesus is the anointed one, the one set apart to work redemption. Those first Christians were, and we are, Christ ones because his name has been placed on us at the baptismal font. But these names, either name, both names, Peter says, will bring insult and suffering. This happened in the first century. This has happened for every century since then. It is happening in our century. Yet Peter, who would himself be martyred for the name of Christ, encouraged and still encourages his fellow disciples by saying, blessing trumps insult. Glorifying is greater than shame. This happens because when we are humbled, God alone exalts us. What's next? I'll ask again. So we'll stay in the Apostle Peter's first letter to the church. 
that a letter that is still God's word to the called out people of God. Martin Luther reminds us of the Christian's three enemies, our sinful flesh, the world which opposes Christ and his church, and the devil. In 1 Peter 5, this inspired writer calls Satan the adversary, our accuser, our opponent in a court of law. He is dangerous. He is very dangerous. He prowls. He roars. He seeks to devour. We must be alert and watchful because the devil is real. He is real. And so is his defeat. For though he strikes out at the heel of the holy opponent, the tempter's head is crushed at the cross. Though suffering for the gospel is experienced, Peter says, by the brotherhood throughout the world, we cling to this truth. The one who is in us, the one who is for us, is greater than the old evil foe. The final part, the final word of my sermon theme is from today's gospel. John 17 happens in the upper room on Monday, Thursday. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He fed them a meal greater than the Passover. It is the meal of the new covenant, his very body broken, his true blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Now, in the upper room, Jesus prays. He lifts up his eyes and likely his hands to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. These words point to the cross and to the tomb. For Jesus will finish his work. He will give his life away. So all who trust in that sacrifice at Golgotha And all who see that the tomb is open and empty will have eternal life. And Jesus prays for those people the Father has given to him. He prays that they, he prays that we would be kept in the Father's strong and saving name. He prays that they and we would be one, united in faith, even as In the mystery of the Holy Trinity, the Father and the Son are united as one God. What next? That's the next question. How do these different parts of Scripture speak the same truth? How do all these puzzle pieces fit together to deliver the good news? How do they bring God's gifts to us today? It doesn't happen because of anything that I do or say. It doesn't happen because of anything you have to do or say or feel. Rather, it happens because our Lord does his work. He gathers us, not in temple courts, not in an upper room, but in this simple sanctuary at Crown of Life Lutheran Church on a hill on the north side of San Antonio. And here he brings us together to receive his gifts. 
For by the Holy Spirit's working, we are the church. We are of one accord. As Paul writes in Ephesians, there is one and the same Lord, one and the same faith, one and the same baptism. With one accord, we confess our sins and we rejoice in God's certain forgiveness. We bear and honor and proclaim the name of Jesus. We devote ourselves to prayer and worship. We rejoice in the oneness which Christ alone gives. For we all believe that the Father sent his one and only Son to rescue and redeem us. What next? It may not happen today or this week, but it may happen to all of us to be insulted for the name of Christ. We may well suffer for being Christians. Next Sunday, the four confirmands will stand before us and kneel before us. And I'm not being prophetic, but it's more likely that they will be insulted and suffer than I will before I die. But we do so. We know we face this with our certain hope. And it is Peter's final words in today's lesson. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion now and forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.